You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. I'm Matt before. My name's Craig. And I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just great to have you with us. Great to have you with us if you are watching online as well. Thank you uh, for joining us. And uh, today we are beginning a new series, um, and we're calling it God and Politics. And uh, we haven't done a series like this before, and we'll see how it goes. We may never do one again. But we are going to do one for the next four weeks. So uh, it'll go four weeks, and it, the last uh, session will be the week after the national election. The Sunday after the election will be our final <clears throat> week on this series. So a couple of different things about this series. One is, all four weeks throughout the series, we're going to receive communion together. Because uh, we all need a reminder, more than a reminder, we need an experience of the Holy Spirit in our heart that speaks clearly to us that we are one in Jesus Christ, and that there is a union in Christ that is deeper than any political affiliation ever can be. There is a kingdom that is higher than the two parties of our government or third parties or whatever, but there is a kingdom that is higher, and that is our ultimate allegiance. And so we will recognize that at the end of each service, or end of today, I don't know if it'll be the end of every service, but in every service for the next four weeks. Also, we're providing a devotional for you during this time. So uh, it's a 10-day devotional, so if you did five days next week and five days the following week, that'd give you, kind of te- that'd give you the, the next two weeks to kind of get your mind thinking biblically as we lead up to the election. And my recommendation is simply this. It might take you 10 minutes to read the Scriptures. The main reason we're making it available is because it's got a Scripture each day that it deals with some issue of government or God's rulership or something like that. And uh, if you would take 10 to 15 minutes that you would normally uh, go somewhere else, uh, social media or somewhere else, to think about politics, if you would do that and meditate on God's Word, if you took 10 times before the election, just 10 times, and read passages of Scripture and responded to some questions about it, your heart, my heart, our minds would be much clearer, and our hearts would be much better at rest. So you can get this a couple ways. We'll email it to you. It's taken from a book by Jonathan Lehman. He wrote a book called How the Nations Rage, and so it's an adaptation from his book. Uh, It says small group study because uh, it's got questions at the end, but it's a simple devotional. If you don't want to do the questions, that's fine, Um, and you can get it two ways. You can go to our web, uh, you can get it at gracechurchfrisco.org, our website, gracechurchfrisco.org, or slash politics, gracechurchfrisco.org slash politics, and we'll, uh, you can get it there. It's a PDF, or we'll email you the PDF as well. So before we jump in, let me answer this question. Why a series on God and politics? Some say that this is the most important election in the history of our nation. Some say in the history of the world. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this. It's an important election to be sure. But my primary reason for wanting to do this series is not because of the importance of this election for our nation. My primary uh, burden, as important as that is, my primary burden is this. The reputation of Christ, 
the preservation of the gospel, and the unity of the church. As I think about 2020 and this year, and in particular, everything culminating in an election uh, in this year, my primary burden is the reputation of Christ. I'd say it this way, the guarding of the gospel and the unity of the church. And I see all of those at risk today. I see every one of those at risk today because many Christians are being more shaped by our politics than our faith. And what's happened is a reversal. Our politics are dictating our faith instead of the opposite. Our faith dictating our politics. Here's the reality. Right now in our country, many Christians are being discipled They're being discipled more by cable news, social media, political blogs and podcasts than they are by the Scripture. That's simply the reality. If you just look at time given to each, what you give your time to shapes your mind and shapes your affection. So I thought it would be good for us to take a deep breath and to pause and go to the Scripture and ask God to shape our thinking and our hearts in what really matters, both in this season of our national life, but eternally, beyond this season, beyond an election, what really matters. And may I say, as one of your pastors, I'm concerned for us, because this church is no better than any other church, and we're vulnerable to the exact same things that the culture is. The polarization, the political polarization is the air that we breathe, and we are vulnerable to that. So I want us to be able to navigate political differences as brothers and sisters in Christ, walking in love, extending grace, communicating with respect for the unity of the church and for our gospel witness which is increasingly getting shot in this culture. The gospel witness is not increasing in these days. It is, it is taking a shot, I believe. So I, I, I pray that we can address things sanely, uh, humanely, uh, and with gospel grace. So in this series, I hope to do a couple of things. I hope, to, uh, I hope we can see the importance of political involvement, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Today, the application will be for those who don't care enough about politics. Next week, I'll talk to those who care too much about politics. Uh, And in any given day, I find myself in both roles, so I need both these messages. But today, I'm going to really make an application for those of us who don't care enough about political involvement, but I also want to talk about the uh, the ultimate uh, importance of the kingdom. So to begin the series, uh, we're going to explore a passage. Today, we're going to talk about God and government. And we're going to explore a passage. Romans 13 is the passage. And we're going to see two things in this passage. It's going to teach us about our calling, or we could say our vocation or our calling. Our calling as citizens and the calling of government. I think that's really important. We need to understand what's God's perspective on government before we can even determine uh, how we're to respond to government. So two things, the calling of government and our calling as citizens. So first of all, we'll start with the passage. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is one of the most detailed passages in all of the Bible talking about the purpose of government, certainly the most detailed passage in the New Testament. And here's what I think the calling of government is from this passage. The calling of government is to exercise delegated authority from God by ruling justly. Now, if you're taking notes at home or here, I'll repeat that again. The calling of government is to exercise delegated authority from God by ruling justly, or we could say ruling with justice. Paul mentions three times in this passage that governmental authority is from God. He says in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those who exist have been instituted by God. That's a second time. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. He's making a very strong case that all governing authorities receive their authority from God. And actually, Jesus makes this very point. Most authorities don't know that. Most governing authorities don't know that they receive authority from God and that they are called and will answer to God for exercising authority. Most don't know that. Jesus had to inform Pilate of that. When Jesus stood before the ruler Pilate, this is what he said. Jesus said, you would have no power and it's the same Greek word as authority here. You would have no authority uh, over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus tell Pilate, the only reason you have authority is because God gave you authority over me. Because the civil authorities receive their authority from God, they function as God's servants. That's mentioned three times here. So in verse 4, it says, for he is God's servant. It's the same word uh, that we would draw the word deacon from. They are God's servants. These are, I'm talking about secular governmental authority here. They're God's servants. Uh, also in verse 4, he says, for he is the servant of God. And then in verse 6, it says, for because of this, you pay taxes, for authorities are ministers of God, ministers of God. You know, many governments actually retain that biblical language, uh, even today, and their departments of the government are called ministries. So you have a minister of finance, a minister of defense, a prime minister, 
Where does that come from? That idea comes from, that's a very accurate understanding. The prime minister is a minister of God. The, 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 the minister of finance is a servant of God. This is God's perspective, okay? This is God's perspective that we must understand. And as ministers of God, civil authorities are to govern as God governs. How does God govern? With justice. They are called to act justly. Now, where do I get the idea of justice and that being the primary role of government? Well, it is from this text because he says the role of government is to reward the good and punish the evil. That is justice. So in verse 3, if you see, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. Some translate for the good, for your good or for the good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrong doer. So rewarding evil, I'm sorry, rewarding good and punishing evil. Civil authorities, it says, are not to be a terror to the good. They, civil authorities under God's authority are not to hinder the good. They are to reward the good instead. They are to reward the good. They are to act for the good. We could even say they are to reward the good and to act for the common good. That is their purpose. Not only to reward the good and act for the common good, but they are to punish evil punish wrongdoers. And that's why Paul says here, they bear the sword. God has different realms, spheres uh, of uh, where there is authority, the family, the church, the government. But the church is not given the power of the sword. The government is. They are given the power to enforce righteousness, to punish wrongdoers. The sword here represents a sort of force, a compelling force to restrain evil, force that's to be used obviously appropriately and when needed, but force nonetheless. And they're given the power to punish. The sword represents the power to punish. Some would argue even the power of capital punishment is represented by the sword. So the goal of governing authorities is to ensure a just and a flourishing, acting for the good, rewarding the good, a just and flourishing society by promoting the common good and restraining and punishing evil. This is the purpose, maybe not the only purpose, but a central purpose of governing authorities. The goal of any governing authority should be, how can I act to ensure a just and flourishing society by promoting the common good and restraining evil? And uh, even uh, acting to punish evil is what the passage says. It's important that we understand this. This is the purpose of government. And if we don't understand the purpose of government, then we get drawn into all kinds of ideologies about who should govern us. But if we start with God's perspective, it helps us to have a better idea. Now, in this series, I will never be endorsing candidates. I won't even come close to that. Um, I won't be evaluating party platforms. If that was your hope in this series, uh, I'm going to give you something much better. I'm going to give you God's view from Scripture and allow you 
to evaluate party platforms. I'm not going to make voting recommendations, but I will point out biblical text that should inform our conscience as we vote. And I'm not doing a wink-wink here. I've heard the sermon where the guy says, I'm not endorsing a candidate. I'm not endorsing a policy. But here are the two policies that you have to vote for, or the three, or the one, or the five, or whatever it is. And they all happen to end up on one side. And so, pal, you just endorsed a candidate uh, in a sly way. I'm not doing that. I'm going to endorse the kingdom of God, and I'm going to talk about kingdom values and biblically, and that will equip you to know how to vote according to your conscience. Because I want your conscience to be bound to the scripture. I don't want your conscience to be bound to my conscience. I have a conscience about voting, and it's bound to the, my understanding of the scripture. And my hope is that you will have the same. So as you are considering candidates in any election, not just this one, but any election, as you are considering candidates and their policies from local city council to the school board to state elections all the way up to the presidential election, you should measure a candidate according to how well they will execute God's purpose for government. Now, this isn't the only passage. There's a lot of passages we could look at. But this is one measure, one important, not the only, but one important measure. Which candidate in any election will better promote the common good for all citizens? As you, as you kind of walk through the the sort of calculus of deciding about voting, it's, it's, uh, it causes us to think and make biblical evaluation, and that's really healthy to do. So which candidate will act for the common good, will better act, most act, for the common good of all citizens? You have to make some biblical judgments about that. Um, another question would be, according to this passage, which candidate will do a better job at restraining evil, and promoting, celebrating righteousness, and restraining evil, even punishing wrongdoers appropriately, equitably, fairly for all people? That's an important question. There's sort of an important question that goes beyond equity and justice and punishing wrong and celebrating good and acting for the common good. I'm not going to take the time to develop this out, but I do want to make one statement that I think is important because we're talking about justice here. What's right? What's wrong? What's right for all people? How to act justly towards all people so that we have a just and flourishing society. But if you look at the Old Testament and how God sets up a theocracy where he rules, you see that he says the same thing in the Old Testament, but there's a huge emphasis in the Old Testament. That God says it's not just to be a just society that he promotes and the good of all people, but he has a strong emphasis on executing justice for those who might not get it, the vulnerable. So in the Old Testament, God has a preeminent concern with justice. It's for four groups of people, justice for everybody, but don't forget these four people, these four groups of people, he says, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. Multiple passages mention those four in the Old Testament. Why? Because they lacked power in the culture, 
And so they may not get just treatment. So when it comes to promoting the good for all, when it, promote, when it comes to rewarding good, when it comes to restraining evil, when it comes to making sure that we have a just and equitable society, the Bible would be very clear in multiple passages that we are to not forget those who may be marginalized. And so here's a set of questions that's important, not the only questions, but important questions when we think about common good and we think about restraining evil and punishing evil all under the category of justice. We want to ask questions like, are marginalized, is there justice for marginalized people? Is there justice for the unborn? Arguably the most marginalized group of people in our culture. Is is there justice for the unborn? Those are questions to ask before voting. Is Is there justice for the poor? This is a significant part of Old Testament rulership, the poor and 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 setting the poor free from oppression. It's all over the Old Testament. Is there justice for disadvantaged children? Is there justice for racial minorities? Is there justice protecting religious groups? In other words, is there religious liberty, justice for those to practice their faith? Is there justice for the disabled? Is there justice for the elderly? Is there justice for the immigrant? See, these are important questions to say, is it the common good for all that government is representing? And to be asking those kind, and there's other categories we could add to that, But there's other categories as well. God's purpose for government helps us think through how we uh, evaluate any given election. The calling of government. Government is to ensure a just and flourishing society by promoting the common good and restraining and punishing evil with special awareness given to the marginalized. I would add that from the Old Testament and the New as well. The calling of citizenship. So that's the calling of government. Let's talk about the calling of citizenship. The heart of this passage is God's calling on us as citizens. One of the most important yet least discussed vocations is the vocation, the calling of citizenship. And we may be surprised to see in the New Testament the primary call to citizens is this. It's what we find in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's the primary calling of citizenship in the New Testament. You may be surprised by that, but if you look at Titus 3, if you look at 1 Peter 2, they say the exact same thing. We are to be submitted in subjection. And the theological reason for that has already been established in the first point of this sermon, that all authority comes from God. So, as if all authority is from God, as we submit to human authority, we are submitting to God's authority. Said in a negative way, the opposite of being submitted, said in a negative way, verse 2, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. So, to rebel against authority is to rebel against God. That is the point of what he says in the passage. But we aren't just to be subject to authority so that we don't get punished. He does say that. If you do good, you won't have any problem. If you do bad, be very afraid, he says, because the government bears the sword. We aren't just to do that because we don't want to get in trouble or we don't want to have to pay a fine or a penalty or be incarcerated or something like this. We don't just, uh, we don't just subject ourselves to stay out of trouble. Verse 5 says, if you'll look at it, 
therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So he's saying you don't just subject yourself so that you don't get in trouble, but you subject yourself because in your conscience, which regulates your understanding of right and wrong before God, in your conscience you're informed by Scripture so that you submit because you are submitting to God in your conscience. You pay your taxes later, we'll see, in your conscience because you're submitted to God. The Bible is saying that obeying the law is obeying God. This is surprising. I'm going to point out in a minute, it's particularly surprising in Paul's day. But it's surprising that this is what it says. Now, is there a place for disobeying the government? Do we always have to obey the government? Yes, there is a place for disobeying the government. There is a place for civil disobedience. And this is a, another sermon for a, another time. Some say that religious liberties in the U.S. are shrinking and topics like civil disobedience will need, uh, will need a better theology of that. So this is a topic for another time. But let me just say right now that when we have to choose between obeying the state or obeying God, we obey God. That's really important. We must obey God. If the state commands us to do what God forbids, then we obey God. If the state forbids us to do what God commands, we obey God. And sort of the classic text on this in the New Testament is in Acts 5. There's numbers. This is all over. We studied one, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you remember that in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Acts 5 is a classic case for this. Um, Peter and the apostles have been brought before the governing authorities, and they have been told not to preach in the name of Jesus. They have defied the authority, and they have preached in the name of Jesus. And in Acts 5.29, this is what uh, Peter says. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. So when they were forbidden from preaching the gospel, they said, with all due respect, because we honor authorities, with all due respect, we can't obey you. We have to obey God. And they preached, and they paid for it, but they did the right thing. So, civil disobedience means if we're required to disobey God, we, we go with God and not the state. But it doesn't mean that if a law is bad, I can disregard it. It doesn't even mean that if a law is ungodly. If a law is ungodly, but it doesn't require me to disobey God, then uh, I, I, I must obey it. And this is a radical teaching because given the context, Paul is writing under Nero. And if I'd said that at the beginning, this whole passage probably would have been looked at a little bit differently. He's writing under Nero. And he's saying all authority is for God. Submit to the governing authorities. R.C. Sproul writes this. Remember that Paul is writing to people who were living under a government that ultimately beheaded him. Paul was executed by a tyrannical Roman government. The Christians to whom Paul is writing paid with their lives in the Circus Maximus in Rome when they were used as fodder for the gladiators and the lions. Though Rome had a marvelous legal system, its rulers imposed ruthless policies upon their own people. Can we agree with the Apostle Paul that the authorities that exist have been established by God? I know this is a tense political moment, but friends, Nero reportedly dipped Christians in oil and lit them on fire as torches, and Paul 
writes a passage speaking very positively of government as given by God. God is not responsible for that kind of heinous, wicked behavior, but he still understood something. And when I look at the landscape today, I don't know what your feelings about President Trump or Vice President Biden are, but may I say that our environment is not remotely like Paul's, not, re- not in the same universe that Paul lived in. And yet he paints a positive picture of government. We all need a little biblical perspective. We all need to check the political panic for a moment and exercise a little faith like Paul does here describing God as the Lord of history who rises, raises kings up and uh, disposes, deposes, disposes of kings as well. God is the Lord of history who is in charge. And even where they were treated at best unfriendly and more normally treated with persecution, Paul calls Christian citizens to lay down their lives and to honor Jesus Christ as citizens in the way they relate to the government, except when the government requires them to do something that God forbids. Then you defy the government to obey God. We're not only called to submit, but we're also called to fulfill our obligations. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is a good maybe April 15th sermon or something, I don't know. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Uh, He's saying pay. He is saying that ideally, though Rome wasn't ideal, But ideally, we pay taxes so that we have an orderly, peaceful society. I get all the cynical attitude towards it. I get it. I battle that. I get it. Government waste, etc. But the reality is that we are to pay, uh, and that's really what the Bible says about taxes. We'll see that next week in the passage we're looking at. When it comes to the government, the Bible typically says submit. Uh, And when it comes to taxes, it doesn't... Jesus just doesn't define tax rates. He just says pay them. That, that is what he says. You can have an opinion and you can vote uh, for a certain philosophy of taxation, but the New Testament just doesn't waste a lot of time on that. It's concerned with other things like the attitude and the witness and the life of the Christian. That's what it's far more concerned with glorifying the Lord. So we to do it respectfully. We're to give honor to whom honor is due. Even when an authority doesn't act respectably, we still respect the office and we still honor the role as ordained by God. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't speak up or that we can't speak out or that we can't even peacefully protest against our government. In a democracy, we're free to do that. Speak up, speak out. We have the freedom to speak. We have the freedom to peaceably assemble. And so that is, that is a gift But even if we do those things, we're to do it with the right motive, love of neighbor, honoring God, who is our authority. 
Our calling is to submit to the governing authorities under God and to fulfill our obligations to them. Now, in Paul's day, here were the obligations. I, I didn't study this deeply, so I don't know all how the Roman government uh, you know, worked, but I, I think I saw a movie on Netflix about it one time. But anyway, um, I don't know how it all worked. But anyway, for him, it was pay your taxes and give honor. For us, I would say something far more. Because we have much more opportunity when it comes to fulfilling our obligations. The obligations in Rome may have been minimal, pay and don't do anything wrong and honor the government. But for us, we have a much greater opportunity. And so as we wind down and make an application, this is the application I'd like to make. I believe God is calling us to take our vocation of citizenship seriously. I think we are to pay our taxes. I think we are to pay revenues, which are to the government as well. That's your DMV fees. Uh, that's your building permits. All the revenues and fees that go beyond taxes. We're to pay those. We're to give honor. We are to give respect. But we're to do more than that because we're blessed to live in a democracy where we have a vital role in our government. We have a vital role in our system. In some ways, because we vote the government in, we're part of the government. We, we are a deciding body in some ways, you could say that. Uh, you know, government uh, that, that is from us uh, and by us, that there's a sense in which we are, our vote um, and, and our other, not only by voting, but by acting in other ways as well, letting our voice be heard. We are a part of establishing the system. We decide who rules, which Paul couldn't have even imagined that. I mean, Romans 13 might have been written, God might have had something different to say uh, at a different time in history, but he couldn't have even imagined the kind of world that we live in. But this is important to think through that we have a say. Dave, author David Platt has written a new book. It's called Before You Vote, Seven Questions Every Christian Should Ask. It's a new book. I think it's just been out about two weeks. I read it. I'd recommend it. It's, it's sort of a general book, just kind of given a philosophy of how to think through voting. You may not agree with this philosophy, but at least you'll be able to see, okay, here's a credible philosophy that's different than mine. If you don't agree, you may totally agree. I don't know. But anyway, he says, before you vote, seven questions every Christian should ask. David Platt. Here's what he says. Speaking of our responsibility to government, he says, this is all the more applicable for followers of Jesus in a representative democracy who have a say in the laws, regulations, structures, and systems that govern our country. In his grace, God has given us a voice and a vote to promote just leaders just processes, just laws, and the impartial execution of those laws. By our representative role in government, we have an opportunity to steward our voice and our vote. Now, I'm not trying to give a civics lesson. I mean, this isn't a civics class, but I am trying to say, what's di- I have to make a contextual difference. There's a difference in Rome and what Paul says your obligations are and the U.S. in 2020. We have a different opportunity, and I think Platt hits it right. We have a point to give a voice and a vote to just leaders, just processes, just laws, and the impartial execution of those laws. We have an opportunity to steward our voice and our vote. We have more than a privilege. We have a stewardship and accountability, I would say, before God. And I haven't always made that clear. I I mean, this is something I want to grow in. 
uh, in teaching. That what I'm saying right now is not something I have said strong enough historically. So I, I really want to, I want to do better emphasizing the study of the Scripture in this last season. Has, I'm learning and growing like I hope we all are. Uh, but we, we have a calling to vote for just leaders and laws. Now, some of us are, I believe, way too amped up about this particular election, and I talked, said we can talk about that next week. But today, I'd like to call those who have checked out and say it is wrong to not faithfully execute your calling as a citizen and to raise your voice and your vote in an appropriate way. Many of us, with all the division and all the anger and all the insanity, we've just checked out. And that's understandable. That makes sense to me. I get, just check out, my blood pressure's lower, I'm relaxed, I'm not mad at people because I read something on social media, I love people, life is good. So I get the desire to, I don't like conflict. If you're a person that doesn't like conflict, you say, I don't like conflict, I avoid it. You may have just checked out, and I understand that. Or maybe you've grown cynical. Boy, isn't that a temptation? Maybe you've grown cynical. By the way, cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. That's not a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you because you're detached and grumbling and complaining about the whole mess of them. They're all liars and, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're all, I just have nothing to do with it. Hey, that's, that's checking out from your calling. That's, listen, that's a failure to love your neighbor. You have a calling to raise your voice and to vote. And according to your conscience, tied to the Scripture, And to use that vote, to step into that voting booth as an act to glorify God and to love your neighbor. Glorify God by doing the best you can, the best we all can in a fallen and imperfect where there's no perfect candidates. You're often selecting between two people that aren't Christians tied to platforms that are both biblically deficient and you're trying to make a decision, okay? So it's, it, maybe it's not easy. For some of us, it's easier than others. But maybe it's not easy for you. But you're saying, God, I'm glorifying you because I want my voice to count to see that you are glorified by a government that acts as it should for the flourishing of all people for the common good, to restrain evil and to punish wrongdoers, for there to be justice for all people. I want that to happen so that all people can flourish and your church's witness can flourish. That, I'm doing this for your glory, God. And secondly, I'm not entering the booth selfishly thinking about me alone, but I'm thinking about what's best to love my neighbor. And if I just get cynical and check out of the whole thing, I understand that temptation. But if I do that, then I am failing to steward what God has called me to steward. So God's calling some of us to repent of apathy and cynicism in the political process. And the case in point If Paul can say, be subjected and participate in the government that will behead me, then you and I can certainly go to God, study his word, get our conscience tied to his word, and then to act in a way that will glorify him and serve others. And do it with joy and peace and faith. And then on November 4th, Leave the results to God and say, I don't know what offices are changing locally, statewide, or nationally. I don't know, but I know one place that has not changed, and it's the throne room of God where Jesus is still Lord.
May I suggest that's a much more peaceful, God-honoring way to live than, than the way I lived way too frequently. Christians, listen to this quote from John Stott. Christians who recognize that the state's authority and ministry come from God will do more than tolerate it as if it were a necessary evil. Conscientious citizens, I love that phrase, conscientious conscientious citizens, will submit to its authority, honor its representatives, pay its taxes, and pray for its welfare. They will also encourage the state to fulfill its God-appointed role and in so far as they have opportunity, actively participate in its work. That is a great statement. He's saying to be a conscientious Christian citizen, which we all want to be, we will submit to its authority, honor its representatives, pay its taxes, pray for its welfare, encourage the state to fulfill its God-appointed role, which could be by speaking up and speaking out, uh, obviously, uh, and, and being prophetic. I want to say that, being prophetic and, and calling wrong, wrong, and evil, evil. And in so far as they have opportunity, actively participate. Paul didn't have that opportunity. We do. And as we embrace our conscientious, I can't say that word, conscientious uh, citizenship, let's realize, last point, this isn't in the text, this is a bonus point. So I'm I'm straying here a bit, but I just want to say it, because I'm going to have a text to to go with it. But here's the deal that's so important for us to all grasp, that as we are being uh, citizens who are acting in an appropriate way out of love of neighbor, let's just realize that our attitudes are on display as a witness of Jesus at all times. There's a passage in the Bible where Peter says exactly what Paul does. Submit to the authorities because they reward good and they punish evil. But then he goes on and he makes a point that has to do with our public witness. It's 1 Peter 2. We have it for you here. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Sounds exactly like Romans 13, doesn't it? Except he uses the word emperor. He's a little more specific there. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Oh, man, put that on your phone or your keyboard or wherever you do social media. Our good, our winsomeness, our godly speech, our honoring of God and love of neighbor, even when we're making a prophetic and or corrective statement about something that's going on, it should put to silence foolish people who have nothing to say, who would say, I totally disagree with what they're saying, but I cannot disagree with the love in which they say it. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's my my campaign slogan for the election in 2020. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And honor the emperor. That's our calling. May God help us to embrace our, our vocation as citizens, and may God help us understand the vocation of government to submit 
to act in resistance to the government if it requires us to disobey God, and then to support the government as it seeks to, uh, its calling to act for the common good and restrain evil. May God help us. Let's pray for these things. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.